Good morning once again, everyone. It is great to see you this morning. I encourage you to pull your Bible out to, and open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We are going to be in the verses 10 through 16 today. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16. Bibles are available uh, under the seats in front of you if you didn't happen to bring one. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16. Um, we are preaching through a chapter of the Bible that is probably, uh, if, if you've read the rest of the chapter, there's some stuff in there and you're like, what? I don't quite get that. I don't quite understand that. And there's actually, um, I know a lot of, of guys that have never preached through this chapter of the Bible specifically because, in my opinion, they're afraid to. Uh, and uh, if it's in there for us, we need, we need to preach through it and figure it out, right? And so we're going to do that today and uh, the next few weeks as, uh, truthfully, it gets more and more uh, interesting as you go through this and what Paul had to say with them. And I think a big part of that is that they were in a culture that was just sick. The culture was sick. Corinth was known for everything awful. And it really, in my opinion, brings us home to where we live today, where you take a look around and you go, man, everything seems broken. Everything seems broken. And here you have these new believers that are trying to reconcile what they have learned from Paul and the, the message of the gospel with what they have just come out of. And Paul is answering questions now, as we mentioned last week, that they asked him. They're like, hey, I, I got some questions. And so that's where we're at. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to walk through that today, and as we look at the practical, you know, uh, instructions that God has for us, just remember that uh, the wisdom and providence of God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit gives us Scripture and put into a canon for us, into the Bible for us, so that we can read and learn from it. Uh, we're really sitting at the feet, not so much of the Apostle Paul, but of the Lord Jesus as he speaks to us by the power of the Spirit. And these questions that, that come up in this section are specifically about marriage. And you think about how I'd said that we're in a broken society, really, I mean, when we look around, for example, in the United States, uh, about 50% of all marriages end in divorce. Uh, the average first marriage that ends in divorce is about eight years, okay? 41% of all first marriages in divorce, if we're going to get this 50% out there, 60% of second marriages in, divor in divorce, and 73% of third marriages end in divorce. And I, I was reading one time, there was, a, there was a person that asked, you know, hey, I, I've been married three times. You think the fourth will work? And so we're just going to safely say probably not, okay? But if you think the United States is bad, Russia has the highest divorce rate in the world. 75% of all Russian marriages end in divorce. 
Now, there's also studies out there that talk about the, those that are Christians. And a long time ago, there was uh, about 25 years ago, there was a study that came out that said that the divorce rate within churches, those that claim to be Christians, was about the same as the world. And actually, that is not true because the, they, this is what, see, this is why you have to look at stats and be like, eh, what's up here? That was anyone that called themselves a Christian. Now, you and I know that there's a big difference about someone calling themselves a Christian and someone living for Christ. They scratched out those that didn't go to church, didn't go to a Bible-believing church, and all of a sudden, that rate dropped down to 20%. So there is a marked difference, but you still know it's there. It's there. And these can really be staggering and depressing statistics in the reality of what divorce does to a person. And, and, and then children. And then extended families and friends and, and churches. And the costs are staggering. And these problems aren't new. The Corinthians faced their own problems with marriage, as we'd seen before, and only the Word of God has the wisdom, really, to help us navigate the stormy seas of all of this stuff. In verses 10 through 16, Paul's instructions on how Christians need to approach here specifically are some extreme difficulties in, in marriage, in this little section here. You know, and you have these, these questions that kind of roll over. Is, is divorce ever permissible? How, how, how should someone who comes to know Christ respond uh, with his or her spouse when, when they are decidedly not a Christian? And these verses are dealing with difficult cases, and the underlying teaching is in regard to something beautiful, and we need to remember that. The beautiful commitment that lies at the heart of marriage the Bible, and you look at it, many people would go, that seems incredibly strict, the view of marriage there. Well, it's actually derived from an even higher view of marriage from God. The marriage commitment is a reality that should not be altered, and we will understand that as we go through specifically the, the first two verses here. In verse 10 and 11. So we jump in in verse 10. And he says this, Paul does. But to the married I give instructions. Not I, but the Lord. And we need to stop there. So what's Paul doing? He's like, hey everyone, this is not my opinion. This is not my, hey, you asked me a question and I think I'll try to help you navigate. This is him saying, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. So here we have, in essence, a command, and keeping it simple, the, co the command itself is, do not get a divorce. 
And if we could just summarize it, that's, that's what he's saying, both to the man and to the woman, as you see there. It's a basic command. We've got to keep it simple. Now, what does Paul mean at the beginning when he says, not I, but the Lord? He, he's saying, I have a word from the Lord on this, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's, what he is doing, too, is he's also pointing to the fact that Jesus taught on this. Jesus taught on this. He taught on this in his physical life on earth, taught on marriage, taught on divorce multiple times. And keep that in mind, the, the New Testament had not been pulled together all yet. Most of it probably hadn't even been written yet down. And, and so they're working on oral tradition and things like that. Luke, if you remember, gathered a lot of accounts together, taking the, uh, the eyewitness accounts uh, that he had heard, and he wrote them down, right? And so we have a saying from Jesus on this. We have a teaching from Jesus on this. And if you go to the Sermon on the Mount... For example, Jesus says there in Matthew 5, verse 31, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the woman commits adultery. So, Paul's being very clear on this. He he, he knows that they've heard that Jesus also said in Matthew 19, they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And, and Jesus goes back and he says, well, it, that's not what's intended there. It's not lawful to get a divorce for any and every reason. And so Paul here is simply stating first to the Christian wife, a wife must not separate from her husband. Uh, he doesn't go into the exception clause, and that's what it's called, if people want to know. That's the exception clause that's in Scripture. He doesn't go into that for when a divorce is acceptable, namely because, um, you know, there, there had been sexual sin. That's what causes that divorce clause to come in. But he's just simply saying the Christian wife must not separate herself from her husband. And as I had mentioned just a few minutes ago, everyone, divorce is devastating. Divorce is devastating to people. It's devastating to, you know, just how you feel inside. It's devastating uh, physically. It's devastating uh, emotionally. It's, it's hard to recover from. The impact on, on children, divorce there, it's incalculable. And the simple teaching here is Christian couples need to stay together. And he also adds in this verse 11, though, if you go back into verse 11, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. And what we have here is we've got to acknowledge that probably divorces had already happened, thus the question. Divorces had already happened. If you, if you kind of picture it this way, it's a, a statement I learned a long time ago, a phrase I learned a lot of, long time ago. The horse was already out of the barn. 
And if this is the case, and a Christian has gotten a divorce without suitable grounds, uh, he is saying you must seek to undo the wrong by being reconciled to her husband or else remain unmarried for the rest of her life. That's, That's what he's saying there. Now, we can start asking, you know, what, what about this? What about that? Let's not do that at first because here what the point is, this is how seriously God takes marriage and divorce. That being said, of course, every single one of us in this room, our heart goes out to those in difficult marriages. Difficult marriages are heart-wrenchedly painful, immensely difficult to know how to bring healing, how to bring restoration. You read those verses and go, okay, I hear you, I understand it, I agree, this is scripture, this is where we're at, this is tough. And even if a spouse has a valid reason for divorce, he or she should never be quick to go that direction. God's desire for marriage is a one flesh relationship of a man and a woman in an unbroken union for life. We see that in Genesis 2:24. We see that in Matthew 19 and Jesus' teaching in 5 and 6. Divorce is always a tragedy, even if there is the exception clause reason, okay? Right? Divorce is a tragedy, and there are lasting ramifications, even if it occurs for biblical reasons, everyone. Now, that being said, the most commonly proposed reason for divorce not found in Scripture specifically is physical abuse, okay? That's, that's probably the number one one that people ask me about. And on this point, I need to be incredibly clear. A spouse who is being physically abused should immediately remove themselves from the situation and seek safety. If there are children involved, they should also be protected. Separating from an abuser is wise There's nothing in the Bible that forbids that. Actually, the Bible specifically teaches that protecting people is morally right. Protecting oneself and one's children is morally right. Am I clear on that? You can ask, what about divorce? Let's not even worry about the divorce part. Let's get you safe. Okay? Let's get you safe first. And I, I feel very strongly on this. I find this statement best to understand where I come from. Jim Neuheiser wrote this in his book on marriage and divorce. And, and this is how seriously I take this for me, okay? So this, this quote is pointing to me, not you guys. Church leaders who send a person back into a situation in which she or he is likely to be beaten have failed to fulfill their call 
to protect Christ's sheep. Acts 20, 28. And they are unworthy of their office. Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 10. That's, that's on me. That's how seriously I take that part of protecting the sheep. Protecting people. Enough said on that. So we see this command, first of all, to married Christians who are going through, obviously, difficult situations, and he's saying, stay with it. Stay together. Work it out. The number one reason for divorce that is listed is incompatibility. I mean, haven't you figured that out like about four minutes into dating the first time? I mean, if that, that's weak. Now, I know some people will say, well, that's all I could think of. And then when you unpack it, it's something different. But you get the idea there. Then there is, in verse 12, the commands to Christians that are married to non-Christians who uh, want to stay in the marriage, non-Christians that want to stay in the marriage to those who are Christians. Verse 12, But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife. In verse 14, we're going to unpack that one here in a second. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. So obviously some of the members of the Corinthian church were saved. And they had been married and their spouses had not yet been converted. No doubt some of these believers were having a difficult time at home and they're asking Paul, hey, do, do we need to stay? Can, do we have to stay? You know, they don't believe the same things that we believe now. Does our, does our conversion alter this thing? And Paul replied that they're, they're, they're to remain put with their unconverted spouses so long as their spouses were willing to live with them. Salvation does not alter the marriage covenant. Did you you hear me on that? Salvation doesn't alter that. Peter's counsel to wives with unsaved husbands also mirrors that in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. Marriage, you see, first of all, in, in a major way, and if not one of the major ways, if not the most major way, is a physical relationship. The two shall become one flesh in Genesis 2. And it can only be broken by a physical cause. Adultery and death are... are two such causes in 1 Corinthians 7.39. We'll look at that in a few weeks. So it's an act of disobedience for a Christian knowingly to marry an unsaved person. This is where it gets interesting. You know, I, we got, in my ministry years, I've got a lot of, you know, college age, young adults, uh, different people uh, of different backgrounds in that way. A lot of them are like, hey, hey, 
met this awesome gal, met this totally awesome guy, and I, I think they, they may be the one. But, Scott, they're not, they're not a Christian. But I think I can, I think I can, I think I can do it. I think they're open. Well, the, the Bible actually says that that's an act of disobedience for a Christian to knowingly marry an unsaved person. But if a person becomes a Christian after marriage, you cannot use that as an excuse to break up the marriage just to avoid problems. And boy, are, are we good at that in life? We, we take detours all the time to avoid things. And, and Paul's like, yeah, that, that doesn't count. Thanks for playing. Try again. Paul actually emphasizes the fact that the Christian partner has an incredible opportunity to have a spiritual influence on the unsaved spouse. Now, verse 14 does not teach that the unsaved partner is saved because of the believing spouse, since each person must individually decide for, to follow Christ, right? I mean, everyone has to do that. So um, there's actually a cult out there that baptizes people over and over again to, you know, baptize their relatives into the faith. And that, that doesn't, wrong, doesn't work that way. So what is he saying here? It means that the believer exerts a spiritual influence in the home and that that believer can lead then and may lead to the salvation of the lost spouse. And then you tie in what about the children then? Well, the emphasis is on the influence of the godly partner in this marriage. The believing husband or wife cannot give up. In 30 plus years of ministry, I have seen devoted Christians live for Christ in divided homes and have eventually seen their loved ones trust the Savior. Okay? It's true. And it's amazing when it happens. So salvation does not change the marriage state. If, if the wife's becoming a Christian uh, annulled the marriage, then the children in the home would become illegitimate in that culture and become unclean uh, in, in the eyes of, of Scripture, all this type of stuff. Instead, these children, once again, may one day be saved if that Christian spouse is faithful to the Lord. And we see that happen over and over and over again. And then he moves on, okay, but what if they do want to leave? What if the unbelieving spouse does want to leave? Verse 15, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not enslaved in such cases, but God has called us to peace. And that word enslaved actually is a technical word that could mean breach of contract. And um, so uh, it's... Uh, it's, it's one that releases. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? 
So what we're getting at here is suppose the unsaved spouse leaves the home. 1 Corinthians 15 gives the answer. The Christian spouse is not obligated to keep that home together. We are called to peace and we should do all we can to live in peace. We see that in Romans 12. But there comes a time in some situations where peace is impossible in that scenario. And if the unsaved spouse separates from his or her partner, there is many times little that the Christian can do except to pray and continue to be faithful to the Lord. And then that gets us into the question, does this separation then give the Christian spouse the right to divorce and remarriage? That's not implied here in any way. Paul does not say so here. Uh, What if the unconverted uh, spouse ends up living with another partner? Well, then that does constitute adultery and that does give grounds to divorce. And you see things start going, okay, um, here's the deal. And I know this is what's tempting with every single one of these types of things in Scripture. We can go down a long list of questions on this topic. On this topic of extreme problems with a marriage. And it can be frustrating because you sit there and you go, why didn't Paul specifically address my issue? Why didn't Paul deal with every possible situation? We have to remember that all this does for us is there are some questions he's answering, but what it does do is it lays down spiritual principles to answer all those questions. But this is not about a list of rules. You know, so many times we just want a list of exclusions. And that's not the heart of this. There's actually a great resource if you do have a, a bunch of questions. Maybe you are in a, a very difficult marriage right now. Maybe you have family that are in a difficult uh, marriage. Um, we've got this book that's in our library marriage and divorce and remarriage uh, critical questions and answers jim neuheiser he uh, is with the uh, uh, reform theological seminary in in charlotte uh, he uh, is a uh, pretty high up in the uh, christian uh, biblical christian counseling world uh, like i said uh, very strong in his stance on abuse and different things like that uh, that quote that i read earlier is from him But um, I was able to get three more of them before before the service today. And if if you're going through a situation like this, uh, you know, you can go home with one of these today. And, uh, but I'm going to make you do something. I'm going to make you come up and ask me for it so I can pray with you. All right, because you should not be walking through this stuff alone. He says in one part, those who have sinfully remarried, because this is one of the questions that comes up all the time when people start digging into Scripture, they're like, uh, uh, bummer, (laughs) I'm... I am not married correctly anymore. 
or, you know, just all types. You, you start reading this stuff and you're like, okay, I feel awful. And he says this, those who have sinfully remarried should repent before God of their past sin and seek forgiveness from the ones who have been hurt by their sin. They should not, however, compound their transgressions by breaking apart the new marriage and attempting to restore the old. Rather, they should seek to honor God by being faithful in their new marriage if they're already married, right? You don't, you don't mess that one up too. I mean, they're just things like that. But we do need to remember this as we walk through this, and we're, we're coming close to the end here. Many times we are prone to think that a change in circumstances is the answer to a problem. But the reality is, is that the heart of every problem is the problem of the heart. And, and we gotta, we got to get right with God. We've got to get right with God through Christ. I have watched so many couples go through divorce and it was in hopes of seeking happiness in new circumstances and they have only discovered that they have carried the same problems with them again and they have found someone with the same problems again. Warren Wearsby once said that he knew a Christian lawyer that said the following, about the only people who profit from divorces are the attorneys. <laughs> few application points. I know I've been giving them along the way, but let's just finish with a few more, okay? Here we go. First of all, just as a believer in Christ, as a believer in Christ, we all need to be praying for the clarity of God's word on all of these topics. We know exactly where God stands on this. He's told us everything we need for a healthy marriage. And I'm not saying that verses 10 through 16 comes even close to everything you need, but everything you need for a healthy, fruitful marriage is in the totality of Scripture. Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Dig into Scripture. Live it out. And it is amazing what happens. Secondly, bring this area to God and pray regularly, no matter what one of these categories you may be in. Pray for God's best in that area. And especially, you know, you need to be praying for the marriage. Pray for the health of the marriage, even if you feel like, you know, for example, we'll flip to those that aren't in a difficult marriage right now. Even if you're in a very healthy marriage, guess what you should be doing about your marriage? Praying being thankful and praying for God to continue to help grow that marriage. And how you do that is the third thing then. So first, once again, praise God for the clarity of His Word. Secondly, pray, pray, pray. Third, look at the blessings of marriage. Keep your eyes on that. See that it's a good thing. It's a good thing to be married. Praise God for it. Be thankful for marriage. Be thankful for your spouse. 
And as you know, if you've been looking at this section of Scripture and this chapter specifically, we are going to say a lot more about being thankful for singleness. We're going to say more about marriage and being thankful for things in marriage. But if you are single right now, and if you don't think you have the gift of singleness, which we've already talked about, you need to be praying and asking God for a provisional gift of singleness. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with, Lord, give me patience. You know, it's nothing wrong with, Lord, I, I get I probably don't have the gift of singleness. I get that message, but God, would you just reduce my desires in this area until you bring the right person in my life? Protect me from doing something stupid. Do you ever pray that to God? I pray that to God all the time. It's one of my favorite words. Protect me from doing something stupid. Because every single one of us in our flesh have a profound, a profound capability of being stupid. And we need to lay all of this before God in prayer. So yeah, verses 10 through 16, Paul is answering questions that are difficult questions for people in, in, in tough situations. Most of them are people that are new to living in the Lord and they're like, oh, what do I do with this now? And he's like, if this, if this, if this, if this, and in all things, keep Christ first. Amen? Lord,